Good heavens, we're ready. I would like to bring this meeting to order and I would like to put forward a motion that we do a Bible study. Do I have a second to that motion? Wow, jolly good. This is, this is what we like to see. Right, okay. Turn to Matthew chapter 22 and we are going tonight be looking at this subject of love from yet another aspect. So find Matthew 22 and verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now what we're going to be looking at tonight is the fact that here Jesus is confirming the teaching in the Old Testament that we must love God and we must love our neighbour as ourselves. Now, before we go into it, cast your mind back to something we did in the Salvation series. Uh, when we were looking at how the problem of sin came into the world, we looked at the fall of man and how Adam and Eve sinned and fell out of fellowship with God. And one of the things that we looked at very briefly there, although we didn't home in on it greatly, was the fact that, that they experienced separation or barriers on three levels. First of all, because they sinned, they had been used to walking with God in the garden, no problem. They could just go up and have a chat with Jesus any time they wanted. And yet after they sinned, when the Lord God appeared in the garden the next time, they ran away and they hid. And we see that a separation and a barrier came between them and God. And there you have the heart of all problems, spiritual problems, that Adam and Eve were separated from God, a barrier between them and God. But then when God started to talk to them about what had happened, they were all excuses, weren't they? And they had an argument, and Adam was blaming Eve, and Eve was blaming Adam and the devil, and stuff like that. And we saw that not only was there now a barrier between themselves and God, but there was a barrier introduced between each other. Can you see? One to the other. Now, if spiritual problems, which are the heart of everything, if they occur when a barrier comes between men and women and God, then when barriers come between men and women and men and women, you then have social problems. In the world, the fact that as we interact with each other, human beings don't always show the great potential they could have for getting on with each other, do they? So we have social problems. But then also, we noticed that Adam and Eve had been used to being in the garden naked, and they weren't ashamed because it was pure. And yet once they'd sinned, they were ashamed, and also they were embarrassed. They were embarrassed at their nakedness. Now you've got to understand, once they sinned, their nakedness wasn't wrong, because there was just them, husband and wife, no problem there, all right? But guilt and shame and embarrassment 
happened in them. And that what happened there is that as individuals, they were separated from themselves. Can you see? A barrier sprung up in them individually. And that is where psychological and emotional problems come from. And that what we're going to be seeing tonight and next time as well as we come to the last study in this series is that we're going to be seeing that love has got to be to do with three particular areas of experience. It's got to be with God, it's got to be with our neighbour and it's got to be with ourselves. And next time we'll be seeing how the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5 ties up with this. So we're going to look at the whole question tonight of loving God loving our neighbour and also loving ourselves, the relationship that we need to have with ourselves. Because if that isn't sorted out, as we're going to see, you lay yourself open for all kinds of psychological, emotional problems, etc, etc. Now, go to John chapter 8, because I want to read some words of Jesus. And I think these are the touchstone of, um, of how we ought to respond to what we're going to be seeing tonight from the scriptures. John chapter 8, and in verse 31, Jesus then said to the Jews who had believed in him, now notice, this isn't Jesus speaking evangelistically, he is now speaking to Jews who were already born again. These are people who have already accepted him as being their Messiah, their Saviour. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, Jesus is telling, he's going to tell them something now that is going to enable them not just to be converts, not just to believe in him, but to go on and be disciples. And look what it uh, see what it is that he says. He says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, we're really going to need that tonight. Jesus is here speaking to a group of Christians who have believed in him. And he says, if you're going to really go on and be disciples, if you're really going to come to freedom from all the things that are wrong in your life and experience, then the way that you're going to come to that freedom is by knowing the truth. And I want to show you how vital it is to understand the truth of the Bible in relationship to the subject of loving God, your neighbour and yourself that we're dealing with tonight. Okay, let's take this in the three parts. First of all, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God. Now there's a commandment, we've got to love God, alright. I mean, it's not an option, and yet it's something we want to do. We, as Christians, are supposed to love God. Now, I expect you remember in the Old Testament the story of Elijah, the way that he was raised up by God, uh, because Israel had got into idolatry with Baal. I mean, Baal didn't really exist or anything like that, but Satan had got Israel believing in an idol. And you remember that he had this contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and what happened was that he said, right, okay, the God who answers by fire, he's the real one. And Elijah, being a gentleman, let them go first. And they started praying and stuff like that, oh, Baal, answer us, answer us. And of course nothing happened. But you see, after a while, the story tells us that those priests started to go into a frenzy. 
they literally started to go bananas and they started to cut themselves. You know, to disfigure themselves, to mutilate themselves, thinking that that was going to force their God to act more quickly. Whereas Elijah, when they finish, just steps forward and he says, do it, Lord, and boom, God does it. But the point I want you to home in on is that these prophets of Baal, they were believing in a God who didn't exist because Baal didn't exist. But the God they believed in was absolutely rotten. They believed in a God who demanded pain from them and suffering from them and cutting themselves before he would answer. That was the kind of God they believed in, a thoroughly horrible God. But thankfully, he doesn't exist. But the problem is <coughs> that many Christians also believe in a God who doesn't exist. For many, many years as a Christian, I believed in a God who didn't actually exist. And he was a rotten God. And what we're going to see is the ways in which we can totally misunderstand the type of person that God is. The prophets of Baal believed in a rotten God who didn't exist, but often Christians do as well. I know that I have done in the past. Go to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4. Something quite staggering that Paul says. Because I want to show you that not only is it possible to end up reading, you know, believing in the wrong God, but it's quite possible to end up believing in the wrong Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11, <clears throat> And verse 4, look what Paul says. He says, if someone comes and preaches another Jesus other than the one we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you submit to it readily enough. Now, can you see, it's possible to end up believing in the wrong God because, in effect, you're believing wrong things about the true God. And so often, these wrong things that we end up believing about God make him out to be thoroughly rotten. And you'll notice how amongst many, many Christians, and it's something we have to watch in all our hearts, there's always this leaning towards a very uh, rigorous religiosity and legalism. And when you meet Christians who are sort of tied up with a religiosity other than a true experience of the Lord, you'll always find they're incredibly legalistic. Loads and loads and loads of demands being made by God all the time. In fact, they're thoroughly miserable. You know, I mean, they're no advert for anything at all, except possibly um, uppers from the doctor. You know, can you see? Because the whole time they're straining away to please this God they believe in, who can't, in fact, be pleased at all. Go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 46. Read some verses here which are quite fascinating. Isaiah verse 46. Start reading from verse 1. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and cattle. These things you carry are loaded as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Now then, go on to verse, uh, verse 6. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it upon their shoulders. They carry it 
They set it in its place as it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Now, this thing about Bell bows down and Nebo stoops, the picture here, Bell and Nebo were two idols who were around at the time of Isaiah. And sometimes even Israel got into worshipping them. And these idols had to be taken on a horse and cart to the various places where they were going to be worshipped. And the picture here is that the cart's broken down and the idols have fallen off. And, and these worshippers of these idols are struggling to carry their gods to where they've got to go because the horse and cart has broken down. Now, when you think about that, you've got believers weighed down because of their responsibility to serve their God. Now, can you see how often as Christians it's very, very possible to us end, you know, for us to end up like that. You end up with a God who's demanding that you're carrying far more than you can bear. However, look at verse 3. Hearken to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to grey hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. And that what God is saying to Israel here, he says, look, you've got these guys with their idols, and they've got to carry their gods. You know, the great weight of responsibility on them because of their faith. He says, but it's not like that with me. The point is that I am going to carry you. And uh, there's a rather famous lager advert, isn't there, uh, for a brand, I believe, called Miller Lite. This is not a confession that I've ever tasted it. I haven't, but that's only because I don't like lager. And uh, the general advert is that what Miller Lite has got over other beers is that other beers are heavy, you see, and all the heavy people drink their heavy beers, you see. And many, many Christians are just like that. They're heavy, can you see? There's no lightness in them. It, uh, Christianity is a really torturous, uh, heavy affair for them because they're weighed down with the responsibility of serving their God. And what can happen if you get wrong ideas about God in your head? And if you think about it, God is saying, I'm going to carry you. We often act as if we've got to carry God, like Bell and Nebo. Well, there's a wrong idea there somewhere, isn't it? Now, if you get these wrong ideas about God into your head, <coughs> you end up carrying a God of endless demands. You end up serving a God who is always demanding more of you than you can actually give. You remember when the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt, they had taskmasters, like the slave masters. You know, and they made them uh, sort of make bricks with straw. And then they do things like, right, you've got to double your quota, but we're not going to give you any straw. Can you see? And that many Christians, their God is more like the taskmasters in Israel than the Lord who is revealed in the Bible. And so can you see how important it is that we've got to have it very, very clear in our minds before we talk about that we've got to love God, we've got to have it clear in our minds what type of person he is. Now go to 1 John 4 and find verse 8 and we'll get the particular truth that we need here in order to build on it. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 He who does not love 
does not know God, for God is love. Now, let's, here is a factual statement about God. God is love. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, in fact, this, this verse came up in a prophecy to Ed on Sunday. For I know my thoughts towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil. Now then, think about it. <coughs> evil always conjures up the idea of fear, doesn't it? And here, God is saying that my thoughts towards you aren't of evil, they are of peace. Therefore, our experience should be the opposite of fear. Now again, cast your mind back to the thing that sometimes as Christians, we can end up trying desperately to serve a God who is making demands on us that we cannot meet. That creates fear. Because if you've ever got someone in authority over you who can punish you if you don't do what they say, and they are demanding of you that you do something that you cannot do, then can you see how it's very easy for Christians to end up living actually in a very, very unhealthy fear that God is going to do something horrible to them? Can you see living in fear of punishment all the time because they're not coming up to the demands of this impossible God who's all the time saying, work harder, do more, do more, improve more, be more holy. Can you see the fear that that can put you in? Uh, you should still be in 1 John 4. Go now to verse 16. So we know and believe the love God has for us. Now that's the secret. If you know and believe the love God has for you, you won't have a problem with fear. Because look, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. In this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For, for he who fears is not perfected, sorry, for fear has to do with punishment, and he who fears is not perfected in love. You see, this is why it has got to be absolutely vital that the Bible tells us that you cannot lose your salvation, which it does, can you say? Because if salvation could be lost, your salvation depends on you coming up to certain standards, and if you don't make it, you face an eternity in the lake of fire. Again, something like that creates absolute fear. And that what we've got to understand is that this picture that we're getting, that sometimes we have of God, is the exact opposite to the picture that the Bible gives us. And we need to understand that because God is love, and because his love has been showered upon us, therefore we should not be living in any kind of fear. The opposite of love is fear. And we need to understand that God doesn't lead us via fear. God never tries to get his way in our lives by frightening us or by making demands on us that we just cannot meet. Now can you see the kind of picture that we're getting here? If you end up with wrong ideas about God, 
Those wrong ideas about God are going to lead into fear because God is love, you can't get better than that. Therefore, any ideas you have that aren't scriptural have got to be less than that and you've ended up with a rotten God. And that can lead you into incredible bondage because you end up serving a God where somehow you've got to carry him. And the whole of the Christian life has got to make sure I come up to God's standards or boy, there'll be trouble, won't there? <clears throat> See, we need to understand that through Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, we have peace with God. Again, the opposite of fear is love, but it's also peace. I mean, say you're a king in a neighbor, you know, and, and sort of like there's a king in the neighboring land next to you. Now, if, you're, if you are on peace terms with that king and that nation, you will not live in fear of war. Can you see? Again, peace is the opposite of fear. And we need to understand that we have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. And that our sin and our guilt, all the things that we've done wrong, they have been fully dealt with. Again, think of the times when you've lived in fear, or what happens when God finds out about this sin that I've done. Well, I mean, God knows about it anyway. But this kind of fear that one day God's really going to get me, isn't he? This is the exact opposite to what our expectations of God ought to be. It's that chorus we sing, I get so excited, Lord, every time I realise I'm forgiven. Whereas for many Christians, their experience is, I get so depressed and frightened every time I realise all the sins I've committed. Can you see? They're not understanding the basic nature of God. And this again is where religiosity comes in. Because if you're pressed down with guilt, you've got to do something to uh, appease whoever it is who you think is making you feel guilty. And that's why religion is so incredibly legalistic. That is why religious people, Christians as well, come up with 10,001 commandments, 10,001 do's and don'ts that aren't from the Bible, they're purely the invention of man. But can you see, becoming ever stricter on themselves, trying desperately to reach some kind of standard, and they think then that God will accept them. <coughs> can you see, all this stems from believing, in actual fact, in the wrong God. I realised some years ago that for a long, long time, I had a, a, a false picture of what Jesus had actually done on the cross for me. Uh, it wasn't something that I believed and would preach, but when I really looked into my heart, I knew that it was there. And the picture I had was this. I mean, I knew that Jesus died on the cross, and, and I mean, his death was an atonement for sin, and therefore I had peace with God. But the picture that I had was Jesus' death was appeasing an angry God, all right? And I had this picture that up there, I mean, I was fine with Jesus. I was fine with Jesus. He died for me. He was a friend, all right? But the picture I had of Father was that he was up there in heaven and that kind of, because of the death of Jesus, he couldn't, he couldn't actually let me have it because Jesus' death was kind of holding him off. 
but the picture that father was just itching to get his hands on me, you know, to let me have it for all my sin. And the idea of almost Jesus saying, no, father, no, leave him alone, stop hitting him. And the father had to reluctantly not do me in because Jesus was saying, but my blood is covering him. Can you see? An incredibly false picture. Because the point is that, yeah, Jesus died to atone for sin, but it was father's idea that he did it. Can you see? Father and Jesus are absolutely one in their attitude. But for years and years and years, I kind of lived and I think, oh my goodness, you know, I mean, I'm fine with Jesus, but if Father ever gets his hands on me, I've had it, yeah. And it, it, it couldn't be less true. That is not what God is like. And it's so easy to end up with these very, very wrong ideas about God. We're going to be moving on in a few minutes to having a little look at two people in the Bible they're both parables. One is the prodigal son, and the other was the slothful servant, you know, the one who buried his talents in the ground. And that what we're going to see is that the real heart of the problem that they had was that the prodigal son had a wrong idea about his own father, and that the slothful servant had a wrong idea about his master, and therefore they screwed up real bad. You see, they, in the parables, and this can often be the same with us, they, they had a lurking fear that they were going to discover that God is a tyrant. A lurking fear that God is going to turn out to be horrible after all. You know, almost as if all, all the nice verses in the Bible are a bit of a con, and that, well, eventually we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and then the truth will come out, and Father will savage us, and if at all possible, remove our salvation and kick us into the lake of fire. You know, many Christians have this fear that when they do actually get face to face with God, that he's going to turn out to be absolutely rotten. Now, contrast that with what Jesus said. He said, come unto me, all of you that are weary, and a heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Contrast that with the worshippers of Bel and Nebo, struggling along trying to carry these whacking great big concrete idols. And compare that with the times when you and I feel that the whole burden of serving God rests on our shoulders. Can you see? It couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus is exactly the opposite to that. And he says, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. So when we are weighed down with the problems of the world, when we are depressed, because depressed it means pushed down, there's no way that that's God doing that to us. Can you see? When we're like that, it's because something has come between us and God. It's not God who's doing it. It's that somehow we've let something come between him and us. If we will put it right, then that depression will go away. That isn't how God relates to us in the slightest bit at all. <coughs> Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? <coughs> he said, woe unto you, and then he told them all the things that were wrong with them. But one of the things he had against the Pharisees was he says that you put burdens on people's backs that are impossible to bear. And he said, and they're burdens that you can't bear either. He says, but you put them on other people's backs and then you don't lift a finger to help. Now, how often have you felt that God's doing that to you? That he's putting a burden on you 
that there's no way you can carry it. It's totally unreasonable to expect you to carry it. But not only that, he's not helping. How often have you felt like that? Can you see this is the false picture of God coming out, this wrong picture that so often we have in our minds? And you see, the reason that the Pharisees were so harsh and unloving, and they were, they were religious and spiritual to a T, but as people they were harsh and unloving. And the reason they were like that is because they had a completely wrong idea about God. They believed God was harsh and unloving, therefore they were harsh and unloving as well. You see, the Bible says that we, as individuals, are created in the image of God. What that means is quite simply this, to a very large extent, we're like God. I mean, he's infinite, we're not, he's holy, we're sinners. But in many, many respects, we're like God, right? free will, etc, etc, personal, physical, yet spiritual, okay, so therefore we are like God. Now that means that finally you are going to live out your picture of your God. Can you see that? If we're created in the image of God, we are like God. You will actually be like the God you believe in, because you won't but help be able to live out your picture of God. The Pharisees believed in a harsh, unloving God, therefore the Pharisees themselves were very, very harsh and unloving. You see, we've seen that here the Bible's saying that we have got to love God. That's right, we must. But here's the point. You cannot love Satan's counterfeit caricature of God. Can you see the difference? If you've got a wrong idea about God, then of course you can't love God. Because I'll tell you, if you've got a wrong picture of God, well a God like that doesn't deserve to be loved. Can you see? Therefore, our response to God, our ability to love Him, is going to be based on our understanding of Him. Now, whereas doctrinally we might be clear in our head about what the Bible says, can you see that Satan can get this lurking false picture? And it's down there in our psyches, in our hearts. It's there, and sometimes it comes out. We've got to deal with that wrong picture of God because you can't love Satan's counterfeit picture of God. He's just too horrible. He's just too horrible and rotten to countenance. But when we realize the truth about God, then what we realize is this. God is so lovely, and God is so lovable. And the biggest barrier that we have to loving God is gone at a stroke. I mean, there are some people you meet who are lovable, aren't there? All right, and you can't help loving them. God is like that. And when you get the true revelation of God, really understanding Him, you can't help but love Him. It doesn't mean that somehow you're able to never disobey Him again, but the point is, you can't help but love God, because He is Himself so wonderful and so lovable. But we've got to deal with this wrong picture that we've got of Him. Because for many, many Christians, the God they actually believe in, when it boils down in it, not what they recite in their creed, but what they really believe in their heart, I couldn't love a God like that and there's no way I would want to. And I'll tell you, 
for many, many years as a Christian, I believed in an awful God. I mean, it, it, it was virtually, I, you know, idolatry. I knew what the Bible said, but in my heart, secretly, I thought God was rotten and horrible, and I lived in fear of him. That was a satanic deception, and we need to deal with it. When you realize from the scriptures just what God is like, well then suddenly loving him doesn't become the problem that once it was. You can't love someone you're frightened of. If you're frightened of God, you know, that he's going to do evil to you or something like that, well, my thoughts towards you are of peace and not evil. That is actually a satanic deception that's got to be dealt with. True freedom can't come as long as you're frightened of God. We are brought into the family of God and he loves us desperately. Perfect love will cast out fear. You cannot love God and be frightened of him at the same time. But on the other hand, if you're frightened of God, then there's no way you can love him. Because if you're believing in a God who is frightening, you're not believing in the God of the Bible who's revealed himself to us in Jesus. And you actually need to really ask the Lord to deal with that deception and just release you from it because there's no need to be frightened of the Lord in the slightest. Okay, you must love the Lord your God. But, secondly, you must love your neighbour. Now, I mentioned a short while ago, we were going to have a look at the prodigal son and the slothful servant. Let's do the prodigal son first. <coughs> Go to Luke 15. Luke 15. The story starts at verse 11. And of course... Basically, the thing here, you've got a dad who's very, very rich, loads of lands and farms and stuff like that, and he's got two sons. And the youngest son decides, Dad, I'm going to have my cut now, and I'm off. Whoosh, out he goes to the world. You know, lives in absolute splendor until his money runs out, and he loses all his <coughs> friends, and then he's in squalor. So then, he eventually thinks, well, I, you know, I can't do any worse than go home. So he goes home, and he repents, and he comes back into the family. Absolutely terrific. But we want from verse 25. <coughs> now his eldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what this meant, and he said, Your brother's come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, Um... Lo, these many years, sorry, but he answered his father, Lo, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends, but when this son of yours comes who has devoured your living with harlots, you kill for him the fatty calf. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. Now, you see, what's happening here is this. The younger son, who's gone off and done a bunk, he comes back and, and father just rejoices, kills the fatty calf, a big party. Now, the eldest son is out working in the field, carrying on as normal, and uh, he comes back and there's this party going on. He says, well, what's happening? And the servant says, your younger brother's come back. Now, his reaction is sour grapes. He's not pleased that his brother is back, he's angry. And the reason he's angry is because his little brother, who, who was living in sin, has been welcomed back and the fatty calf has been killed, etc., etc. But what's interesting is that he has a good old moan to his dad and his father said, he said, look son, you're always with me 
and all that is mine is yours. Now the problem was this, that father had everything there for his elder son to be enjoying. But the problem was his elder son didn't believe his father wanted him to have it. Therefore he didn't take it. He just worked very stoically. You know, I've never disobeyed your command, I've worked for all these years, I've never asked nothing of you father. You know, if you met Christians like that, you get blessed and their nose is out of joint. Oh, I've never been blessed. Serve the Lord all these years. You know, can you see what it is? Now, the point was, the elder brother was unable to love his younger brother because he had a wrong idea of his father. He didn't believe his father wanted to bless him. He didn't believe it. Therefore, he didn't get blessed. So his younger brother comes back, who's been out there living in sin, while the older brother's been working hard and serving father, serving the Lord, you know. His younger brother comes back and he gets blessed to the eyeballs. So what happens, the elder brother, who did himself out of all the blessing, because he didn't believe his father wanted to bless him, he gets sour grapes. Can you see? Because he had a wrong picture of his father, he was unable to love his brother. He didn't believe his father loved him. Therefore, he couldn't love his younger brother when he got blessed. All he could do was be bitter and come up with sour grapes. Go to Matthew 25. Let's have a look at the slothful servant. <clears throat> you know, this parable, various servants left a certain amount of money and uh, sort of they go off and make it work for them. But there was one servant who just dug a hole and chucked it in. And it's a picture of someone who ends up doing nothing with what they've got. Now, remember, God's given us salvation. We are meant to be serving each other. We're meant to be loved. The love of God has been shared abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We're meant to be sharing the love of Jesus with people as we meet them. Well, the slothful servant, what did he do? He dug a hole and buried it. Now then, what's interesting, verse 24. When he's called to account, listen to what he says. He who received the one talent came forward saying, Master, and this is a picture of a Jew talking to Jesus, their Messiah, that's what the parable's about. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not winnow. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Now can you see, this servant had a totally false picture of his master, and he was afraid. So he thinks, whatever I do will be wrong. Have you ever felt like that with God? I know I have. This feeling, whatever I do is going to blast me. It's awful. It's this wrong picture of God. Now the point is, this servant buried his talent. He didn't serve his fellow men because his picture of his master was all wrong. And this thing, a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you didn't winnow, being afraid of him, that's the opposite of Jesus. Can you see how it works here? These two guys, the elder brother of the prodigal son and the slothful servant, they failed their neighbour. They did not love their neighbour because the picture they had of their father, stroke master, was all wrong. All right? Therefore, what we're going to see is that if you have a wrong picture of love and aren't secure in God's love, there's no way that you can even begin to love your neighbour. Go back to 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. 
And what I want to show you is that this thing about love, because remember, in this series, we're not looking at our love, we're looking at the love of God. Do you remember agape? A word that is only used in the Bible of God's love. And when the Bible says, love God and your neighbour as yourself, it's not talking about any old love, it's talking about agape love. Now what we need to understand is that you can't originate agape love, alright? You can't originate it. And the reason you can't is because it's God's love, it's not our love. 1 John 4, first of all, verse 10 and 11. In this is love. Now, get what John is saying here. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Go to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God should love his brother also. Now, can you see the point here? God is love, alright? God is love. Now, therefore, if God is love, if you could come up with a little bit of love, then you'd be adding to God, can you see? If God is love, if you could genuinely love, if you had a genuine bit of agape love, well, then you're actually adding to God. And you can't do that. You can't add to God because he's absolutely infinite, you see. Therefore, if we can't add to God, when it comes to agape love, there's nothing we can give. All we can do is receive it from him. Can you see? The only agape love there is, is God's. It can't come from us. Because God is the only one who's got it. Therefore, the only way that we can get a stake in agape love, in the love of God, is if we simply receive it from him and kind of reflect it back to him and reflect it out to other people. So therefore, the point about love when it comes to a Christian is that you can only receive God's love by responding to him. You can't do anything to create love in your heart for God. But if you respond to God, then you can receive that love from him and pass it on. So therefore, when it comes to God's love, you can only pass it on when you have first yourself received it. Remember what we read here from what John says. He says, we love because God loves us. Can you see? It's not that God loves us and we love God. It's simply the fact that God loves us, therefore we can love him back. It's not our love. This isn't a kind of a 50% him and 50% us. This is 100% of God. So therefore we love because we are loved. It's as simple as that. But until you know you're loved by God, you won't be able to love. The Bible says that we give only because we have received. We have nothing to give when it comes to God's love. But if we receive it first, then we can pass it on. All right. Now, can you see that what we're seeing here is quite simply this. We will therefore not be able to love our neighbour. And you remember someone said to Jesus, who is my neighbour? And the point of the parable he told is that really your neighbour is whoever needs loving at the time. 
Whoever needs loving at the time when you're there, that is your neighbour. And we're seeing that we cannot love our neighbour until we individually are safe and secure in the revelation of the love that God has for us individually. Can you see that? We can only pass on the love that we are receiving. But if we don't believe that we are receiving that love from God because your picture of God is wrong, then there's no way that you can pass that love on to other people. So therefore, let me just at this point give a couple of suggestions, or three suggestions for helping each other with this, alright? And the first one is this, it's all to do with passing love on, but also helping us to maintain this right picture of God that is going to enable us to keep receiving his love. And the first thing is this, we mustn't make a big thing out of each other's sins. Can you see? I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. When someone in the fellowship sins, it shouldn't surprise us. And the reason it shouldn't is because we know ourselves. Can you see? Therefore, we should never make a big issue out of sin. When God decided that it was time to make a big issue out of sin, he took it out on himself, didn't he? He became a man and died on the cross. He didn't take it out on us. Now, it doesn't mean that sin hasn't got to be faced up to and dealt with. Yes, sin has got to be faced up to and dealt with. But, you see, the point is that what we've got to make sure, that, you know, that we never, ever keep bashing each other over the head with our sins. Simply knowing if sin is there, it's got to be dealt with, but not to make any bigger issue out of it than we have to. And uh, at the same time, remember again in the Salvation series, we, we saw the principle that for each one of us individually, we either let God deal with us in the closet or he'll do it in the living room. So we mustn't think that we're going to get away with sin, but the point is that we mustn't make it any harder than is necessary for each other to repent, because God doesn't. When he made a big issue out of sin, he decided to take it out on himself. Right, now the second thing is encouragement. We need to encourage each other. Uh, we saw earlier on in this series that Paul said, let all things be done for edification. And that word edification in the Greek, it means building up. And that one of the things that we need to do, just in our lives together and with other people, is that <coughs> we need to accentuate each other's strengths and minimise each other's weaknesses. Can you see that? Again, we've got to avoid making a really big deal about what's wrong with people, all right, at the expense of also building people up and encouraging them when God is doing good things through them. We'll be back to that in a few moments. And then thirdly, we've spoken about feet washing, haven't we? Being a servant. This is really what love boils down to. Um, I remember a few years ago when God took me through, well, started to teach me about the doormat phase. And, uh, I mean, the doormat phase is when you kind of start to realise that God is, is letting people walk all over you. That's what being a doormat is. And how that ties in with feet washing in the ancient, you know, in, in the East, that you went to a meal, but your feet were all dirty, so the servant got your feet clean. Now, therefore, when people start treating you like a doormat, it's not very nice, but at least it's getting their feet clean, isn't it? Because that's what doormats do. And so, therefore, in our role of being servants to each other, there are going to be times when we have to go through this kind of doormat phase, isn't it? 
This is part of what loving each other means, because if, if someone is walking all over us, at least it's getting the dirt off of their feet. Now, the thing that you do with a doormat is you lay it down, don't you, at the front door. You lay down a doormat. And John says that we must lay down our lives for the brethren. Can you see? That's what it means. Now, I'm not encouraging being masochistic, you know, like forever lying down, please walk all over me and, you know, sort of make me as dirty with your dirt as you can. But can you see the point? This is all part of what it means to be passing God's love on because all this is what God himself has done. When I talk about, you know, us being a doormat, because at least it gets people's dirt off on us. That's not nice for us, but it gets it off them. Remember, Jesus himself was made to be sin. Who knew no sin? Can you see that all these things, in effect, they're just practical applications of what it is that Jesus has done for us when he died on the cross? And that is all incumbent upon us if we really are going to love our neighbour. But the third thing that we've got to note now is that it says, love the Lord your God, <coughs> but love your neighbour as yourself. And we've got to see now the tie-up between those things. Loving your neighbour is tied up with loving or your relationship with yourself. Now, there are some books going around today which is making a really big thing about this, you've got to love yourself. It's as if it's a doctrine that was just waiting to be discovered, and now it's been discovered, and of course it's, it's, it's been duly thrashed to death. And when that happens to a doctrine, it goes too far, because there are books today that really what they're saying is what Christians need is really great self-esteem, you know, that, that we've really got to make sure we love ourselves. Now, what I want to show you is that the problem isn't that we don't love ourselves. That isn't the problem. The problem is actually that we love ourselves far too much, don't we? It's not a question, I am not going to say to you that you've got to have more self-love, because self-love is itself the basis of sin. But what I am going to show you isn't that we need to love ourselves more, but we need to love ourselves correctly. We need to understand what true love is. Look, how can I illustrate this? Say you've got someone who's a bit enormous, you know, sort of gland problem, you know, big person, you know, as wide as they are tall, all right? Now, sometimes you meet people, and whatever their problems, say it's obesity in this case, but sometimes you meet people with a particular problem, and you see, what happens is that, that we say, their problem is that they hate themselves because they're so horrible. You know, I horrible to look at, maybe too big or something like that. And we say this person's problem is that they hate themselves because they're too big or something like that. Now, I want you to think about it very, very carefully. The problem that they've got isn't that they hate themselves. The problem they've got is that they love themselves too much. I'll explain. If they hated themselves, They'd be glad that they were horrible, wouldn't they? Can you see? They wouldn't be bemoaning it, they'd be thoroughly glad. I mean, let's face it, if you hate someone, which is a terrible thing to do, but when somebody hates somebody, if misfortune comes upon them, they love it, don't they? Part of hatred is wanting the worst possible things happen to that person. So when you get people who have maybe got something about themselves that they don't like, all right, it's not that they're hating themselves, that's not their problem. 
Their problem is, in actual fact, that they love themselves too much. Their, their mind is too much on themselves. If only they could forget about themselves and their defects and just get on with loving the Lord and serving other people. So, I'm not going to say that we've got to learn to love ourselves more, because our problem is that we all love ourselves far too much, don't we? But what we have got to do, rather, is to understand that we must be in right relationship with ourselves. Can you see the difference? And that whatever problems people have got, very often at the bottom of it is that somewhere they are in a wrong relationship with themselves. And when Jesus said, love your neighbour as yourself, this is what he was talking about, okay. Now then, what we're going to see is quite simply this. I'm going to show you that your relationships with other people is actually going to depend upon your relationship with yourself. Now, can you see how important it is to have a right relationship with yourself? Because your relationships with other people are going to depend on your relationship with yourself. But, and this is where we go full circle, back to point <coughs> number one, your relationship with yourself is ultimately going to depend upon your relationship with God. Alright? Now then, we saw earlier that Satan can caricature God. Satan can come up with a counterfeit picture of God. And if you end up believing a counterfeit picture of God, you're not going to get on with God very well, are you? Because you've got a wrong picture of him. Well, in exactly the same way, <coughs> Satan can also give you a counterfeit, caricature picture of yourself. Can you see what I mean? So that if you end up believing things about yourself that aren't true, you're not going to be able to be in right relationship with yourself. Incidentally, <coughs> Satan can also give you a wrong picture of somebody else as well. You know, and sort of sometimes you can end up possibly, you know, sort of really having a problem with somebody. Whereas if you just go and get to know them, you might realise that it was your problem. You, you were actually believing things about them that were wrong. Can you see? Satan's very good giving us wrong pictures of God, of each other and ourselves. But we're interested in the wrong picture that he gives us of ourselves. And for many, many Christians, where their problem lies in this department is that Satan has got them believing that in their relationship with God, now we are sinners, yes. <coughs> we are totally dependent on God's mercy, yes. But Satan loves to get Christians believing that the only truth about them is that kind of they're really rotten, and they are really horrible, they're a nothing, an absolute nothing. And many Christians relate to themselves in such a way, almost as if they're nothing in the sense of being an insect, of no more value than an insect, or something like that. Now, what I want to... Um, the church has always had in it what I call worm theology preaching. Now, worm theology uh, is the kind of thing when Christian leaders are always reminding you that you're nothing. You're nothing. They're always reminding you of how rotten and horrible and terrible that you are. Now, they get this from the Bible, but I want to show you that they've misunderstood what the Bible actually says. Go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, and find verse 6. 
Psalm 22 and verse 6, where we read these words. But I am a worm and no man. Alright? Here they have it. Look, we're worms. We're no better than worms before God, you see. And so they proceed with their worm theology preaching. There's another place in the Bible, in Isaiah, and we'll be going there in a short time, where God speaks to Jacob, and he says, Oh, you worm, Jacob. And there it goes there, we're worms. We're no better than worms before a holy God. Can you see? And these people are very anti-people. And that often, when Christians are very anti themselves, very down on themselves, it's they're almost treating themselves as if they're worms. Now, I want to show you what this actually means, because it's really rather lovely, and the exact opposite to what at first it might look like. Uh, you're in Psalm 22. Let's read verse 1 and 2. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Now then, here in this psalm, when we've got this cry, but I am a worm and no man, from verses 1 and 2, we actually discover it to be a messianic psalm that Jesus <coughs> quoted on the cross. In this psalm, it is Jesus saying, I am a worm and no man. Well, I mean, there's not, I mean, even if we allow for one moment that maybe fallen humanity are worms, nothing, there's no way that Jesus is. Now, the answer to this lies in the fact that in the Hebrew, there are different words for different types of worms, all right? There are lots and lots of different worms. And the worm here, the Hebrew word is tolaath, all right? Tolaath. And it's a very particular type of a worm, and it's in actual fact the crimson grub. Now, in the ancient world, uh, the, most in, the most expensive and hard-to-produce dye was the colour purple. And in the ancient world, purple, the colour purple, robes made of purple, you know, dyed purple, they were only for, for kings and, and for the very richest people. And the reason was there was only one way that the ancients knew how to get purple dye. And it was from the crimson grub. And that if you mashed a crimson grub up, you got a tiny little bit of dye, purple dye, and they used it for dye. But to get a decent amount, you had to get millions of these grubs, and they used to smash them to smithereens in big vats. And it was incredibly expensive, all right. Um, <coughs> in Acts 16, verse 14, it talks about Lydia, who was converted, and it said that she was a seller of purple goods, all right. So then, here, Jesus is saying, I am a crimson grub, all right. Now, what's the picture? The picture is simply this. The crimson grubs were killed, they were destroyed, so that kings could have their royal garments. Now, can you see the picture? Jesus was crushed on the cross. He died for us to make us royalty, because we are sons of the king. Can you see? That's the picture here. Not trying to make out that the human white, you know, race are mere worms or something like this. It's the picture that Jesus was crushed on the cross in order to make us royalty. This isn't kind of justification for saying that we as human beings are nothing and we're wretched and, and we're mere worms. Just go to the one uh, in Isaiah, 
about Jacob, Isaiah 41 and verse 14. <coughs> Isaiah 41 and verse 14. And here we have God's word. He says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. Now then, what word is that? It's Toliath. It's the crimson grub. And it goes on, Behold, I will make of you a threshing sledge, new sharp and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. This isn't God telling Israel how rotten they are, you know, you worms. What this is talking about was the fact that Israel was going to be crushed so that others could be blessed. And we know in our experience, we've done a study on this, sharing the sufferings of Jesus. There are times that you and I go through sufferings in order for other people to come into the blessings of Jesus. Can you see? So therefore, we don't have in the Bible anything uh, at all of this worm theology. You and I are not worms. We are not mere insects. You as an individual are not nothing in the sense of a mere insect before God. You were created in the image of God. And let's ask a question. What do you rate your personal value as being? What do you reckon you're worth as an individual is? You might be sitting there and thinking, oh, I'm not worth anything. Alright? Well, okay, what does God consider? What's the value that God put on you? What's the value that God puts on me. What am I worth to God? What are you worth to God? I'll tell you. The life of his son. That's how valuable we are. In order for God to get us into the family, the price he paid was the death of Jesus. Now I'll tell you, you don't go into a shop and pay £450 for a very, very old, tattered, simulated fur coat but you might for a mink coat, mightn't you? Now, can you see? That's the value that God has put on us. Can you see how terrible it is when Satan gets us thinking of ourselves, that we're kind of nothing, we're of no value or anything? That is a totally wrong and satanic picture. This is why we've got to build each other up. Do you remember what I was saying? Accentuate each other's strengths and minimise each other's weaknesses. There are many, many Christians who have got an inferiority complex spiritually. And that is wrong to have an inferiority complex spiritually. But can you see that if we build each other up in the proper constructive way that the Bible speaks about, then we're going to help people with that complex to get back into balance, aren't we? However, if you only ever say negative things to people... I mean, say there's someone in the fellowship... And if they do something wrong, you correct them. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need correcting. But say they do something wrong, you correct them, fine. But if, if they do something right, not a word. That person is only ever corrected. If that person is suffering from the inferiority complex, we are compounding that satanic deception in them. Whereas if we build each other up in a constructive way, we mustn't stop correcting each other because we have a problem with sin. We mustn't stop correcting each other. But if we don't build each other up as well, all we're going to do is to <coughs> procreate this counterfeit picture that Satan likes each one of us to have in regards to himself. Next time, we're going to be looking at the fruit of the Spirit. All right. 
Now, think of it, the fruit of the Spirit. One of the, many, many Christians, they think, oh, I'm not making progress. And they never feel they see any development in their lives spiritually, whereas other people do. And the reason for that is that an orange tree never tasted an orange. Can you see? An orange tree grows oranges for other people. Now, the fruit of the Spirit in my life isn't for my benefit, it's for yours. The fruit of the Spirit in your life isn't for your benefit primarily, it's so you can serve other people. Now then, think about it. All right, let's think about an orange tree. Now, like an orange tree, because we're sinners, if we surrender to Jesus, some of the fruit is going to be good because it's going to be Jesus. But some of our oranges are going to be rotten because that's just us. And there's always a mixture. There's the good fruit and there's the bad fruit. There's that which is of Jesus and that which is of us. Now, I want you to picture an orange tree sitting in the middle of a field. Now, this orange tree only exists for one purpose, and it's to grow oranges for other people. Now, I want you to think that over the years... Every time people have come and they've had an orange, if it's been a nice orange, they've just marched off eating their orange, having said nothing to that tree. But every time people came and picked an orange that was bad, they stood under the tree going, Bleh! oh, that's awful, oh, what a ghastly fruit tree. Now, can you imagine that after a few years, that orange tree, which is doing its best, might end up with a bit of a complex? Because the problem is... Those who eat good fruit just go away and say nothing. Those who eat the bad fruit stand under the tree, you know, sort of bleh, all over the place. Now that tree is going to think all my fruit is bad because it never receives positive input. Can you see? And that tree could end up with a terrible, terrible complex. And it's worse. It's much worse when orange trees end up with complexes because no one has yet worked out how to do healing of the memories of an orange tree. You see. So can you see, that is what we can sometimes do to each other. Can you see, if we only correct without building up as well, we're actually going to strengthen this satanic deception that Satan puts in our minds. Rather than getting rid of it with the balance of the truth and the love of uh, uh, the truth of the Bible and the love of Jesus, we are actually going to procreate it. So then, we've got to be in right relationship with ourselves, and we've got to help each other to be in right relationship with ourselves. And the reason is because your relationship with yourself will be projected onto other people. Remember, love the Lord your God and your neighbour as yourself. How does this work? Well, for instance, say you feel condemned, and there are some Christians who go around and they're under condemnation the whole time. Why are they under condemnation? Because they've got a wrong picture of God. They don't believe that the Bible says there's therefore now no condemnation. But they've got a wrong picture of God, so they're going around under condemnation the whole time. Now then, when you've spent a few years going around under a dark cloud of, you know, condemnation, you start thinking to yourself, <coughs> why should I be the only one who's condemned? Why should I be the only one who's miserable? Why should I be the only one who's spiritually depressed all the time? That's not fair. And so you duly go off and you start to condemn everybody else because you don't see why you should be the only one. Can you see how it works? You project your relationship with yourself onto others. For instance, if someone is angry with themselves, and there are people who are angry with themselves, 
And this is a mental condition in which they exist for years and years and years. They are angry with themselves. You will often find with those people that they are very angry with others as well. Because their anger at themselves so frustrates them, they live on a short fuse. So along comes you, you know, whistling away. You, morning. You know, they bite their head off and that's it. You think, yeah, can you see? If you're not in right relationship with yourself, you're not going to be in right relationship with other people. people. Some people can't forgive themselves. If you can't forgive yourself, believe me, there's no way that you're going to be able to forgive other people. You might be able to go through the motions and say the words, but can you see if you're not right with yourself, you can't be right with other people. Same with discouragement. Some people are discouraged with themselves. And what do they do? They discourage everyone they meet, don't they? And this is something that we've got to understand. It's very, very important. So then, the point is, if you and I are not in a right relationship with ourselves, there's no way you are going to be able to love your neighbour. However, but if you're not secure in God's love, then there's no way you can be in right relationship with yourself. So can you see, it goes back to the heart of the matter, being secure in our relationship with God. Look, God thinks that you are worth loving. It's not just that he loves you. He actually thinks you are worth loving. And I'll tell you why that is. Because that's the only way love can think. I mean, say you sort of said to me, Beresford, you're married to Belinda, do you love her? And I said, yes I do, of course I do. But if I then added, but she's not worth it, can you say, that would only be another way of saying I don't love her. So when we say that God loves us, that is God saying, I think that you are individually, as a person, quite worth loving. It's as simple as that. So then, therefore, what you've got to do is this. We know that if we sin against God, we've got to confess that to God. We all know that. We know as well that if we sin against somebody else, that we've got to go to them and put that right. We all know that. <clears throat> but what many people don't believe is that you can sin against yourself. In the same way you can treat God badly, and in the same way you can treat other people badly, you can treat yourself badly as well. Now when you've done that, you have sinned against somebody. You've sinned against yourself. And you've got to put that right with yourself. So therefore, when you've done that, you've then got to forgive yourself. You've got to stop worrying about, you know, all this sin in the past. You've got to stop thinking that you are the worst Christian crawling on the face of the earth. That very attitude towards yourself is wrong because it's not true. I mean, Paul the Apostle said that he was the greatest of sinners. He said that he was the least among all men, all right. And he really felt it. And yet Paul was in a terrifically good relationship with himself. He enjoyed God. He enjoyed life. Can you see? What you've got to do is to stop singling yourself out as if you're different from everybody else. You're not. You're the same as everybody else. You're created in the image of God. And the value that God set on you was the life of Jesus. And he loves you intensely because he thinks you're worth loving. 
something else. We know that God accepts us just the way we are. That Billy Joel song, I love you just the way you are, I mean, that is tremendously true. That is how God feels about us. He wants to deal with our sin, yes, but God accepts us just the way we are. Now, what that means is that you must accept yourself just the way you are. You mustn't all the time be thinking, oh, if only I was more mature as a Christian. Because if you have that attitude all the time, you won't get more mature as a Christian, can you say? When you can accept yourself as you are, then you are open to God changing you. But if you can't accept yourself as you are, then you're not in right relationship with yourself, and you're closed off to God, and He can't. I mean, we know that, say for instance, there was someone in this fellowship, I mean, sort of, say Dave, say I didn't accept Dave the way he was. And, and I'm always, you know, sort of doing Bible studies about, you know, all the changes that God needs to make in Dave, you know. Now, you would know, you would know that, I mean, I, I need to get that sorted out with God. I would actually have to go to Dave and say, sorry, Dave, I've been in right relation, I've been in wrong relationship with you. I've sinned against you. Now, if I do that to myself, it is quite equally sin. We need to understand it. Look, <coughs> There is nothing wrong with you except your sin. I'll say that again. There is nothing wrong with you or me except our sin. Now, isn't that fantastic? I think that's fantastic. There's nothing wrong with me except my sin. But isn't it incredible that God also accepts me with my sin? Now, yeah, he's working on me. He's working on you. But the only reason he wants to deliver us from the power of sin anyway is because it prevents us from being ourselves. Did you realize that? One of the most terrible things about the sin in your life from God's point of view is that it's preventing you from being you. It's preventing you from being fully who God created you to be. And God wants to deliver us from it so we can be even more fully ourselves. It's tremendously important. Often Christians, they think, oh, if, if only I could feel I was in God's will. You know, Christians always thinking, oh, you know, how do I know if I'm God's will or, you know, what? Now, the truth of the matter is, you are God's will. You are God's will. Because God created you. Can you see that? And that when he did, he threw the mold away. Because he created you uniquely. There's no mass production in heaven in any way at all. In Proverbs 23 verse 7, in the AV version it says this, As a man thinketh, so is he. As a man thinketh, so is he. And that Hebrew word thinketh, shah, means estimate. And what he's saying is, that according to your estimate of yourself, <coughs> you will actually become. Now then, <coughs> if your estimate of yourself is that you are unloved by God, you are going to end up a very unloved person. Not because people don't love you, but because you will put yourself beyond re you know, actually receiving love. And when people come to give you love, you'll push them away because you consider that you're not worth loving. Can you see? As you think of yourself, that's what you'll be. And it's precisely the same principle when Jesus said, 
according to your faith, be it unto you. Can you see? What you believe is what you're going to get. If you think that you are a big nothing, period, end of story, if that's your attitude to yourself, I'll tell you, the effect of that will be that you'll live like a nothing. Can you see? Not because you are one, but because you'll end up accomplishing nothing. You'll end up loving no one. You'll end up serving no one, because your whole Christian life will be bemoaning the fact that you're a nothing. Can you see? We've got to bring the truth of the Bible on these issues really to bear in our minds and in our hearts. And we've got to start kicking these false ideas that Satan has given us out. Don't ever give up on yourself. Ever. If you do, or if you have, maybe there are some here who, in reality, they're carrying on, they're going through the human, you know, doing what Christians do. But some Christians have long since given up on themselves. If you have, then you think far less of yourself than God does. Because God hasn't given up on you. Can you see how important this is? That what we're seeing is, you cannot pass on the love of God, you cannot love your neighbour unless you are in right relationship with yourself. But there is no way you can be in right relationship with yourself until you realise the relationship that God himself has decided to have with you. Until you realised how beloved you are of God. Until you realise how forgiven you are by God. Until you realise just how safe you are with God there's no way that you're going to be able to be in right relationship with yourself because you're going to be all screwed up, all tense, all kinds of fears, all kinds of swirlings away in the subconscious, you know, what will God do to me next and things like that. Can you see, we've got to sort that out and then when we're in right relationship with God, really safe and secure in His love, that then we'll find that our relationship with ourselves and therefore, with other people as well, is going to begin to sort itself out. So therefore, love God and love your neighbour as yourself. But Jesus said the truth shall make you free. Therefore, can you see, we've got to take this truth and we have actually got to use it to kick out of our minds and out of our hearts all the very, very wrong ideas that we have about God. It's an utter insult to him, isn't it? When he is so wonderful, and yet we end up living in fear as if he's so horrible. I'll tell you, that truly is blasphemy. The Greek word for blasphemy simply means to speak injuriously of. And isn't it terrible when we believe things about our loving Heavenly Father when we believe things that make him out almost to be some kind of ogre who's just sitting up there trying to pin something on you and that if you're not a good boy he'll have your salvation away from you and you'll end up in the lake of fire and even if you're among the lucky ones who are saved by the skin of their teeth yeah. nevertheless he'll get his hands on you eventually can you see get rid of all that because it's satanic and uh, you know really just use this truth. I believe that, that tonight, 
God just wants us, as you go home, really take this with you, because it, it's going to do us all so much good if we really do use the truth that we have on this subject. Right, next time, the last of this series, and we'll be looking at the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We'll finish there.